The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. After they were released from prison, they both told me how they would they would listen to Radio Free Asia, they would listen to, to the BBC, and they would wow. hear things about their case. The information would get into prison to them about how much people were paying attention. And they said that that is really what kept them going, is that knowing that they weren't suffering in silence, suffering in the dark with no one paying attention. So they didn't feel lost and they didn't feel hopeless, which is really critical when you're yes. sitting in a prison that's actually called insane prison. Hi, this is Joe. I'm here with Gail Gove, General Counsel at Reuters. I met Gail high above the uh, lovely office building that we have here in New York City, uh, where there's tons of noise typically and the, the din of all sorts of things happening as you might gather in Times Square, but we're at a very different stage today. So what we're going to be talking about are things that happened in the past, but are certainly relevant today. The Myanmar case is absolutely fascinating. It's an 18-month episode of sadness, but ends up being triumphant, where Gail Gove got to work with Amal Clooney in trying to get two Reuters reporters out of jail. This episode is fantastic if you want to understand what it's like to be a media lawyer. You get the idea of how people are interacting around the world, not just in the United States, not just in in Europe. We're talking about over 90 different countries, understanding political regimes and the different pieces that are in each jurisdiction. There's obviously new pressures that are all over the place right now on businesses, on legal departments. It's increasingly more difficult to navigate this new environment and manage those risks. If you're interested, after listening to this episode, check out our free report on the state of the corporate legal department at tr.com forward slash the hearing. The hearing. We are here today with Gail Gove, chief counsel of Reuters. Welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you. There's so much to talk about, but I really want to get into sort of your story. What's going on with you in terms of how does one become a media lawyer? It was a long journey. Uh, For me, I didn't necessarily set out to be a media lawyer. I set out to be a civil rights lawyer. So I graduated from NYU Law and went to work for the American Civil Liberties Union um, as a staff lawyer on a fellowship for my first year out of law school. And then I clerked for a judge, uh, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley, who'd had a very large role in the civil rights movement. And she was really influential, just the opportunity to learn from her, to get her historical perspective. And she was sort of a lion of the law and in the court system. Thereafter, I went to work for a law firm and I specifically picked a law firm that had a First Amendment and media practice, hoping I could kind of elbow my way in. Um, And I did, and it worked out extremely well. So I became a media lawyer through a lot of um, mentorship from a, a few people in particular who were outstanding media lawyers and trained us heavily. I don't know if lawyers invest that kind of time anymore in associates, but we had weekly um, Socratic method meetings Ah. in which we all had to present and were quizzed and it was a fabulous way to learn. So I spent several years in private practice learning how to be a media lawyer and thereafter I worked for for Dow Jones, which is the publisher of the Wall Street Journal, before I came here. Okay. Did you grow up in New York? No, I'm originally from Seattle. Ah, have you been back recently? 
It's been a few months, but yes, I do. I go back regularly. My parents are still there. So do you miss back. it? <laughs> of course. I mean, there's there to me. Those are real mountains. So I'm always a little <laughs> bit sad here because um, I'm used to sort of these epic and majestic mountains. And so, of course, I miss Seattle a lot. The city has changed considerably from when I was a youth there. In some ways, good. In some ways, I miss sort of the gritty city that it used to be. But um, like anywhere else, it's true for New York too, right? It's just progress. So. A lovely town. No, no doubt. I, one of these days, I've traveled probably too much. I think I did ninety thousand miles last year, but I have not been to Seattle or to Portland at this point. So I desperately want to go. Both <laughs> of which are outstanding cities. And I'm a big, I'm big into food. Yes. So I yes. think that's got to be a spot to hit. I, I'm sure yes. that as well as coffee. Yes, for no sure. No question. And now beer. I think yes. they have a ton of different breweries. Beer has always been a Seattle thing, as long as I can remember, and Portland. Um, and I, but I would say even more so now, the east, the eastern part of Washington for wine, um, and Oregon for Pinot is outstanding as well. So it's a good trip to take. Yeah, so you may miss that too, I guess a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no question. So um, I'm really curious. I think Reuters is in what 90 countries or regions around the world. How do you try to wrap your hands and arms around uh, all the issues that may pop up with different laws, different regulations, and the, the struggles that maybe reporters have in different regions? A ton of it comes from experience. I mean, I've now been guiding a global news organization in one capacity or another for well more than a decade. So you start to learn what, what are the different kinds of laws around the world and what you need to be mindful of before you can then go investigate the specific law at issue. So understanding that the, the, the legal regime is very different outside the United States. There are contempt laws outside of the US and there are different kinds of things that we just don't have to think about here. Privacy is a much more aggressive issue around the world than it is in the United States. So I would say I don't look at anything through a US lens anymore. I do it very much through a global lens and the things you need to know are things that you acquire over time. I feel like my profession is a great example of why it's truly the practice of law. There's no guidebook for, for what I do as a media lawyer. Um, it's things, it's experience that you accumulate over time. Are there like, are there groups of people that you have to work with to, to be able to get that perspective? Or are you just constantly talking to people con all over the place to try to understand what's going on in different areas? I mean, there's there are so many different regions, whether you're talking about things that are happening in Asia or Europe mm -hmm. um, or here in the U.S. Is there an approach that you've taken to try to sort of wrap your arms around that part too? Well, I always pay attention to legal developments around the world. So I'm always watching certain cases. I'm watching what they're doing in terms of legislation. So for example, hate speech legislation is on the rise. And that is very broad and can have an impact on what you can or cannot publish. Again, privacy legislation is on the rise. That has a huge impact on what you can or cannot publish. What's going on politically in any place obviously clearly matters because a lot of what you can and cannot say depends upon that political regime. So a lot of it is following the news and knowing what's going on in the news. And then working for an organization like Reuters, I have the privilege that our people on the ground um, are very well versed in what's going on there. Um, they're usually my first steer. I mean, they, they know what's happening. They know how to read the context. And they are a good, uh, a good source of information on how this could potentially go down and what might be the best path to it. Sometimes I find that in any given scenario, potentially lawyering up right away is not necessarily the best okay. thing to do to, to quell a problematic situation. Sometimes there are other things you can do to resolve it rather than making it a legal fight with the local authorities. What I are try those to avoid things? that. 
how, how would you approach that if there is something that does come up and you clearly you don't want to lawyer up? Um, what are the approaches, the soft approaches that you've seen that work? I mean, immediately our goal is obviously to quiet things down. If we're get if we're if we're finding ourselves in hot water with local authorities, um, the idea is not to ramp it up, but to sort of work with them in a way with, that does not compromise our independence, our integrity, or uh, the accuracy of anything that we've published. So sometimes it can be just having a meeting with them in which we listen and are respectful, um, but at all times we make it clear that our the editorial discretion is ours. And it's very common around the world, and it's becoming increasingly common, that um, authorities are uncomfortable with robust, independent journalism. Um, and that has in varying degrees all over the world. And you have to learn how to navigate the, their laws and their concerns while simultaneously publishing the most information you possibly can. So my default rule has always been to publish as much as possible um, with manageable legal risk. And that's very different than saying, there's no legal risk because there's legal risk in everything that you do as a news organization. Um, you have to be comfortable with that that eventuality that something could come to pass. But if you're not, you would never publish meaningful news. So the goal is always is always to put as much out there as we can while protecting the safety of our people um, and not going too far to create a situation in which we just can't be on the ground. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So you're responsible clearly for the domestic and international litigation for all of these different cases that may come up. One of the things that I'm curious about is how do you um, try to figure out whether or not a story could pose a risk? It's, that's almost the same answer, experience. And oftentimes what you see is the stories that you think are relatively anodyne or vanilla. Sometimes those are what cause the problem, right. whereas the, the really hard-hitting story doesn't. Sometimes that's because if you do publish a really hard-hitting story that's the result of investigative journalism and so on, they have much bigger problems than the, than the publisher, right? They had the underlying issue is probably overwhelming them. So again, with time, you know, you read story after story after story and you get, you know, um, complaints and allegations. You start to learn the things that, that can be, that can trigger legal action. But what I find is that I have yet to see a meritorious legal action. In other words, if we get it wrong, we're going to correct it. We're going to fix it. We're not going to wait until someone sues us. We're going to fix it um, so long as we're put on notice. So I have not been involved in a case actually here or, here or elsewhere where we're defending false speech. That doesn't mean that they can't sue us around the world for speech that they um, claim that there are privacy issues around or that it implicates our national security laws or what have you, but we've always made the decision that the risk is one that's worth taking. So in those in those situations, um, you're accepting that, you know, some, some or all of the content that you're putting out there could lead to a legal issue, but ethically and legally, you're willing to back it up is the okay. determination that we come to. That makes a lot of sense. Well said. Um, so one of the things I've been thinking about is there's definitely been some <laughs> issues that we've heard about in the news where two journalists from Reuters were imprisoned and eventually released in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you had much to do with this in terms of your discussions around this and working towards resolution there, but could you describe what the issue was that happened there? What happened to the two uh, individuals and then sort of play out potentially what the end net result was, end result was? Sure. Um, I was intimately involved in this case. This was almost my entire life for 18 long months. Oh um, so Walon and Chasa'u are two Reuters reporters who were working on an investigative story in Myanmar about the mass murder of 10 uh, men and boys in a village called Indin, which is in Rakhine State. 
which is a state that is um, an area of persecution of Rohingya. And they were preparing to publish the story. Um, the authorities, including police and security officers, got wind of it, and they had, um, I would say, very revealing photographs of the crime that demonstrated um, the death of these men. And um, right when we were very close to publishing, they were called for a meeting with a police officer. A police officer planted documents on them. Oh. The second they walked out of the restaurant, there were... 10 to 12 police officers lying in wait, and they said, wow. you know, arrest them, they have secret papers. So it was a total setup, and they were taken away. Um, that began an 18-month effort to get them out of prison, um, and it was very long and very protracted in a, in a country with um, sort of undeveloped rule of law and an undeveloped system at this point. You know, Myanmar has a unique history, and it wasn't, you know, is moving towards democracy, but it's, for example, it's judiciary rolls up to the military. Oh. And this was a case in which we were reporting on um, effectively war crimes by members of the security forces. Wow. And we have a judge who was appointed by the military. So it's very complicated. It's a, and it's a country with a very complicated history. Um, it was a deeply political case because what we were reporting on touched on an extremely sensitive issue for Myanmar and also at a time in which they were being accused of genocide. Um, and this story was part of that, you know, part of that, that landscape. So it was a deeply political case in a country without a very established rule of law and one in which, you know, their innocence was absolutely not in dispute and notwithstanding that they were convicted and that conviction was affirmed twice on appeal on the premise that they had failed to prove their own innocence. Um, uh, that was the explicit reason by every judge. So oh my. it was a very frustrating journey. I can only imagine. Um, to, to, to finally get them out. So 18 months. Um, that's You spent most of your time every day on that? Oh, yes. I mean, every day for, you know, from the day they were arrested until we got them out. There, at some, some portion of my day was absolutely spent on this case. It was a phenomenal amount of work. We had a, a full trial in Myanmar. Um, and then there was a lot of diplomatic and advocacy efforts to try to get them out. There are a lot of conversations that were had with various people around the world and in Myanmar um, to try to make their case that these were innocent men and that it was in their best interest to release them. Um, part of that was also training our lawyers and, and helping them through a trial right. and teaching them how to do some things that, has not, that have not been done in a Myanmar courtroom before. I spent three and a half months or so, maybe four months in Myanmar. My colleague Catherine, um, who works with me, spent another three months in Myanmar. So wow. we were there a lot. And there was really no other way to do this case than to be on the ground to fully understand the serious historical and political and social context in which this case was happening. Because it was it was so much bigger than just about these two, oh, these two young men. So as chief counsel of Reuters, with two of our or our employees there, how were you able to deal with the media in that space? How do you disclose information but not disclose information? Is there some sort of balance you had to strike there? Yeah, you have to be really careful in these situations because for Myanmar, the more international pressure that there was, um, the less inclined they were to release them, and that was very. I mean, that was explicitly stated to us that that was a problem. They. they that decision needed to be made on their own terms and not one that was enforced upon them by the outside world. At the same time, keeping international focus on this case was critical to them and to, the, and to us. They couldn't be forgotten. The world needed to continue to care. There had to be some motivation there to, to release them. 
Um, and after they were released from prison, they've both told me how they would they would listen to Radio Free Asia, they would listen to to the BBC, and they wow. would hear things about their case. And and you know they would information would get into prison to them about how much people were paying attention. And they said that that is really what kept them going is that knowing that they weren't suffering in silence, suffering in the dark with no one paying attention. They they were very much aware of how much we were doing to try to get them out, even if they didn't know all the specifics. So they didn't feel lost and they didn't feel hopeless, which is really critical when you're yes. sitting in a prison that's actually called insane prison oh. in Yangon. So um, all, you know, all those, it was a very fine balance. And you just, every day you try to figure out on which side you wanted to be for that given day. Uh, not to get too detailed, but were they abused at all? Or are they in healthy conditions within that prison? The first two weeks, um, they were held at a secret uh, interrogation site and questioned um, on a prolonged basis. They were handcuffed for days. They were um, uh, prevented from sleeping. Uh, they were subject to intense, I would say, mental pressure. Um, beyond those initial two weeks and once they were moved out of this sort of they were basically in isolation at a secret interrogation okay. site um, that had been used during military years and moved into the regular prison population at insane they were treated much better and um and i have to say a, f- a few times one or both of them uh, was ill during the course of that time and the prison authorities were responsive and got them medical help um so all things considered um they it's still prison. It's still prison in Southeast Asia. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but, and we did we did get to see them every week because they came into court every week, which means that we could look at them, we could see if they were okay. Um, Wallone in particular was very vocal about yelling things out between when he would get out of the, the police van and walking into the wow. courtroom. And we knew that if anything was wrong, he would have told us. Okay. Um, and so I think all in all, it could have been so much worse in terms of how they were treated. How are they doing now? Um, they're doing well. They're reunited with their families, and I think thinking very much about their future and what their future looks like and, and what they want to do. Okay. That that makes a great deal of sense. Holy smokes. So I have a quote that I'd like to read to you, and I'd love to hear your comments if that's possible. Sure. So this actually comes from one George Clooney. You ever heard of this guy before? <laughs> he basically said, quote, unquote, my wife spent the last year every day with Reuters chief counsel, Gail Gove, and with Reuters editor-in-chief, Stephen Adler, working as hard as you could possibly work behind the scenes to get these guys out, he said. And last night, for my 58th birthday, at my at my birthday dinner, those two men walked out. Clooney continued, and I have to tell you, I couldn't be more proud of my wife, I couldn't be more proud of Reuters, and the way they stuck up for journalism. What are your thoughts? I was an incredibly generous statement, obviously, and, and very, very kind. Um, Amal played a really key role in this case. Um, she was a fantastic partner and colleague, and she genuinely works as hard as he described. Um, we worked hand in hand the whole way through, and her diplomatic expertise is unparalleled. She's absolutely fantastic with knowing how to navigate big cases like this on an international scale. She's also an international human rights lawyer, which is not a skill that I necessarily have. I've defended journalists around the world for a long time, but in a case of this magnitude, where you could potentially have other bodies who are going to come in to weigh to weigh in on what was done here and, and what kind of what kind of international laws were broken, she was an absolutely indispensable partner. So it was um, our relationship with her and the work that she put in to help us get them out was was absolutely invaluable. 
Yeah, it sounds amazing. All that my perspective is, of course, is a, a person that we see in the news, person that we see in fashion, but she's a barrister, of course. Um, is she at, what's the name of the firm? Is she at a particular firm? She's at Dowdy Street Chambers. Okay, okay. Um, but it must have been uh, both uh, wonderful to work with her and see how she interacted, but I'm sure she also learned from you in terms of your perspective on things, working with journalists in the past over the years. Um, how she worked to work with? Like, uh, what's the experience like? She's absolutely lovely. I mean, she's brilliant and, and very intense in a way that I really enjoyed. Um, I've never seen someone who is, is, she is always in good shape and good form to work with, right? She's very focused. Um, there came a point in which I ran out of ideas and, you know, Amal came up with, well, what if we try this one more other thing? And in that way, in that way, she was such a fantastic ally because she was constantly willing to think outside the box. And we had to get really creative to get these guys out. If, if one thing didn't work, something else needed to work. And she was phenomenal about thinking about all the different avenues that we could go down and all the different people that we could talk to. Um, and she's she's the real deal. You know, I think people at first said to me, was this just some sort of PR ploy? And I was like, absolutely not. I, I asked her to join us because her 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 skills as a lawyer are, are top-notch. And I think that for any journalist who finds themselves in this kind of a case, she would be my first call, which is why I think she's now representing Maria Ressa. Um, so I think uh, there are a few people with her expertise and her dedication to a free press and fairness around the world is just unparalleled. That's fantastic, amazing. Now, thank you for sharing that. So at this point in your career, you are teaching at Columbia. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it that you impart in your students within journalism about what they can look forward to, what they should focus in on as they start to uh, grow their careers? So what I hope they take from the class is, um, I don't want them to be many lawyers. That's never the goal. I'm always a little bit chagrined when after the class someone comes up and says, I love this so much, I'm gonna go to law school. And I think, oh dear, that, was, that wasn't quite the point. What I would like them to be able to do is to um, know, know how to evaluate a legal threat from one that is just puffing and designed to intimidate and silence them to one that is real, where they need to, to really pay attention and get a lawyer involved. Um, I want them to understand how judges and juries and others see them um, if to the extent that there is ever a court action or they're being judged in the court of public opinion at the same time and really to spot legal landmines before they walk into them because once you're in it it's really hard to get back out so the goal is honestly to teach them to be able to issue spot and to know you know uh oh I'm about to do something that is right on the line I either need to talk to a lawyer or an editor um, and so on. And I think in the days of, there's no question to me that right now is a very intense time to be a journalist. I think a lot of legal tools are being used against them. So the idea is to give them tools and knowledge so that they can navigate all those, all those different issues successfully and continue to publish safely what they want to publish. Um, so right now they're taking a 24 hour exam, so we'll see how they did. <laughs> and that's the goal is just, is to see if they know you know, what's, what's lawful, what's not, and, and if someone is making a threat, um, what's the strength of that threat and what should you do about it? Really interesting, okay, excellent. So one other question I'm curious about is, this might be somewhat obvious, but I'm curious to hear your perspective on it. it. What impact has technology had on your industry in terms of obviously within um, media, within Reuters, and then how you've had to deal with some issues that pop up? Um, I mean, social media, the aspects of that. Is there anything out there that you, you think have actually had a major impact? 
mean, technology has fundamentally changed the media industry even since I started practicing um, in the early 2000s. So in terms of journalism, obviously there are so many different platforms in which they can connect to one another. And some of that's extremely helpful. Being able to use WhatsApp or Silent Circle or whatever it is to enable secure communications internationally is extremely helpful um, because you could act with speed. From a publishing side, um, it puts a ton of pressure on a news organization, especially one like Reuters, where our, our business is speed. And so you are often calibrating the absolute market demand that you get the news out there first with our um, absolute commitment to accuracy. And those two things can very much be in tension. And so I do see our newsroom pull back when there is something really salacious on Twitter. You won't really want to run that down um, unless the news itself is just the sheer fact that it's on Twitter, for example. But I think that for journalists, they are constantly having to weigh, do I need to push this out immediately or do I need to take the extra 20 minutes or day to find out if there's any truth to this allegation. So um, technology, I think, is both a benefit and a burden for us in so many ways. It facilitates so much more news gathering than was ever possible. It makes the world smaller, but it also makes the demand for speed all the more real. All right. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. It's excellent. Thanks a lot. The Hearing. Thanks for listening to The Hearing. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, a lot has happened in the world since we recorded this. So if you're interested in finding out more about how law departments are navigating the new business landscape and adapting to the needs of 2020, download our free report at tr.com forward slash the hearing. And if you'd like to give us a rating and subscribe, you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.